0: Well, thank you very much for coming out um, and thanks for this invitation. Uh, I'm honored to be here with you. And I want to talk to you about something that is um, near and dear to my heart and uh, you'll see why that is as things unfold. You should know that there's going to be some text up here. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not one of these guys who does a presentation and then reads my slides. Uh, I'm, I'm going to talk to you um, person to person Um, And when there is text on the slides, though, I'll read that uh, for emphasis as well as for information. But if you have trouble seeing, you can always move up. I know that's a painful thing for a lot of folks, but just want you to know it's an option. So um, I'm going to begin by talking about um, uh, an article that that I published last year uh, that represents something I've been thinking about for decades now. And I want to take that article in a direction that I think is going to be relevant and and important for people who are called to congregational ministry. Um, And so the first part of my talk is called Writers Save. Um, And the article that I wrote is called The Witness of Literature, a Genealogical Sketch. And uh, I want to tell you where this came from. Um, The the, the seed of the article was planted more than 20 years ago when I was at um, the... Calvin College Festival of Faith and Writing. Some of you may have have been there. Um, Every other year, um, this this massive conference, thousands of people come um, to hear uh, poets and novelists and essayists and other kinds of writers speak about the relationship between their work and the Christian faith. And uh, one of the, the featured speakers this particular year was someone whom I had made friends with a few years earlier, Frederick Beekner? Some of you may know the writings of Frederick Beekner, and we had met in 1985 when he came to Wheaton College to to teach for a term, um, and and had become had become friends. And uh, so we wanted to have a chance to get together while we while he was we were both in Grand Rapids for this conference. And when we were there, um, he's he's the the people had set up a room. For him, um, where he was sort of almost like a royalty, you know, in in, in state, um, and uh, they had like guards at the door to make sure no unauthorized persons were allowed to enter the the you know almost like the holy presence, right? It's like you know entering the holy of holies, and um, and um, and so. Terry, my wife, and I came and sat down and we were talking with Fred and then somebody else came and so we said, oh, well, we, we should leave. And he said, no, no, please, I, we, I want you to stay. We haven't, you know, you're old friends. We haven't talked long enough. And so we stayed and we were there in that room with with Fred for about an hour, uh, maybe more, And and people kept coming in and every person who came in said a variation on the same words. They said, thank you so much for your writing. I don't think I could be a Christian if it weren't for you. Your, your words, your stories make it possible for me to be a Christian. And I thought, what, a, what, what an incredible testimony to his work, but also what an odd thing to say. I mean, these are people who have churches. These are people who have pastors. These are people who have enormous wealth of Christian resources, and yet they say, I need this writer. I need this novelist. And it started to occur to me that, you know, I'd heard that said about other writers. I've heard people say, I don't think I could be a Christian if it weren't for the Narnia books. Or I don't think I could be a Christian if it weren't for Flannery O'Connor's stories. Or I don't think I could be a Christian if it weren't for for Walker Percy's novels. Um, It's an extraordinarily commonplace phenomenon, and yet it wasn't always so. The heart of it, I think, is in something that, that Buechner wrote in one of his memoirs. My story is important not because it is mine, God knows, but because if I tell it anything like right, the chances are you will recognize that in many ways it is also yours. Maybe nothing is more important than that we keep track, you and I, of these stories of who we are and where we have come from and the people we have met along the way, because it is precisely through these stories in all their particularity, as I have long believed and often said, that God makes himself known to each of us most powerfully and personally. If this is true, it means that to lose track of our stories is to be profoundly impoverished, not only humanly, but also spiritually. And by those stories means the stories that we tell one another of our own lives, but also the fictional stories which elaborate some sense of what it means to live in the presence of God. It's a commonplace thing now, as I say, but it wasn't always. And, and I think you really don't find people talking in this way about the, the, the essential need for literature as a means of sustaining the Christian life until at some point in the 19th century. You just don't hear people saying that about Dante. You don't hear people saying that about Milton. Um, It's just not part of the historical record. And yet, sometime in the 19th century, this comes to, this rises to the surface. A kind of a classic example is a book by um, a man named William Hale White, 19th century Englishman who wrote under the name, the pen name Mark Rutherford, and in this, the autobiography of Mark Rutherford, he talks about the, the role that the poetry of Wordsworth had in giving him faith. He says, Wordsworth would have been the last man to say that he had lost his faith in the God of his fathers, but his real God is not the God of the church but the God of the hills, the abstraction nature, and to this my reverence was transferred. Instead of an object of worship which was altogether artificial, remote, never coming into genuine contact with me, I now had one which I thought to be real, one in which literally I could live and move and have my being, an actual fact present before my eyes. And I think that abstract God, that artificial and remote God in which he could not believe was the God that he had been taught about in church. So he says, I have to go to poems, and I have to get poems that describe for me a God of nature. And that's a God I can believe in because that God is palpable and real to me in a way that the God I learned about in church never was. God was brought from that heaven of the books and dwelt on the downs and the faraway distances and in every cloud shadow which wandered across the valley. Wordsworth unconsciously did for me what every religious reformer has done. He recreated my supreme divinity, substituting a new and living spirit for the old deity, once alive but gradually hardened into an idol. So his argument is that the God that I learned about in church was a God who who hardened into an idol, and, and the living God in whom I could believe and with whom I could have contact was the one that Wordsworth showed me, this God of nature. Now, you can see from this that what's often involved in this sort of substitute of literary deity for the God of the church, the God taught and proclaimed in church, is pretty much a loss of everything that is theologically, doctrinally distinctive. Um, but it, it's not always that way. And in fact, um, another figure later in the 19th century became important, Robert Browning. There's our Armstrong Browning Library here. And when the, uh, in the late 19th century, when the first Browning Society was formed in London, soon to be succeeded by an American version of the Browning Society, which ultimately funded the creation of the Armstrong Browning Library here, it was because people believed that Browning was a kind of a designated prophet of something much closer than Wordsworth's poems were to biblical Christianity. But the idea was that in the late 19th century, people couldn't hear it from the pulpit. They couldn't hear it in sermons. They couldn't hear it from pastors. They had to hear it from poets. And if there's anyone who more than anyone else explains why it works that way, um, I think that's George MacDonald. George MacDonald um, is in an essay about fairy tales, And the power of fairy tales says, suppose my child ask me what the fairy tale means, what am I to say? If you do not know what it means, what is easier than to say so? If you do see a meaning in it, there it is for you to give him. A genuine work of art must mean many things. The truer its art, the more things it will mean. It is there not so much to convey a meaning as to wake a meaning. And I think that... Is the key to what literature does. It. Uh, there is a, a, a. Kierkegaard famously wrote that our illusions that we have about ourselves cannot be dispelled by direct confrontation. They can only be dispelled indirectly. That is, we, we do not, we, we are, we're very good at defending ourselves when our illusions are challenged straight on. Um, and nothing could possibly illustrate this more perfectly than um, the story of what the prophet Nathan did when he realized he needed to confront David about his sin in uh, uh, taking Bathsheba as his lover and killing her husband. He knows that he cannot directly confront David. He knows David is too well defended for that. And so he says, let me tell you a story. A story about a man and some sheep and another man. One of them is rich, one is poor. And, and he elicits by telling a story in which David does not think he is implicated at all. He elicits from David a response. And then, because David is very smart, the only thing that Nathan needs to do in order to turn the tables is to say, you are the man. You're who I'm talking about. And David has already judged himself out of his own mouth. But it couldn't have been done directly. Um, And I think that's often the way that it works for us, that people are, the word awake here is a really important word that what literature does um, uh, at its best is to awake in us a meaning that we don't know we're looking for, that we don't know that we're seeking, that we don't know that we need, and to set us off in search of a fuller and truer and more complete rendering of that meaning in our lives. This was, in fact, uh, exactly how um, George MacDonald played a role in the conversion of C.S. Lewis. Lewis, when he was an adolescent, read um, uh, MacDonald's novel, a fantasy novel, Fantastes. And Lewis wrote, What Fantastes actually did to me was to convert, even to baptize, my imagination. It did nothing to my intellect nor, at that time, to my conscience. Their turn came far later and with the help of many other books and men, but when the process was complete, by which, of course, I mean when it had really begun, I found I was still with MacDonald and that he had accompanied me all the way and that I was now at last ready to hear from him much that he could not have told me at that first meeting. But in a sense, what he was now telling me was the very same that he had told me from the beginning. But Lewis did not, at that early stage, have the ears to hear that. What he did have was his imagination baptized and a kind of an awakening of his moral and spiritual imagination to possibilities not only that he was not interested in, but that he thought he had left behind. That is, he thought that the Christian faith was something he would never have anything to do with again. He had permanently outgrown it. And he didn't know when MacDonald captured his imagination that he was actually being drawn back, led back towards the Christian faith. He had no idea that was where he was going. Later on, when he had undergone a fuller development of his and he had converted not just his imagination but also his intellect and his conscience, then he was able to say, oh, (laughs) MacDonald was actually telling me this all along. I just didn't realize it at the time. And then when he came to write his own works of fantasy and especially the Narnia books, he used a very similar method. He wrote, I thought I saw how stories of this kind could steal past a certain inhibition which had paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. Why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told one ought to feel about God or the sufferings of Christ? I thought the chief reason was that one was told one ought to. An obligation to feel can freeze feelings, and reverence itself did harm. It was all so sober, and it was all so serious, and it was all so mandatory. And the rebel in Lewis reacted against that. But, he said, suppose that by casting all these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make them, for the first time, appear in their real potency. Could one not thus steal past those watchful dragons?" I thought one could. And thus he wrote the Narnia books. I think that it's really important for those of you who are in congregational ministry or who are called to congregational ministry, or who just care about the success of congregational ministry in Christ Church. I, th- I think it's really important for all of you to think about how many people there are like Lewis who are not able to receive, for whatever reason, directly and immediately the teachings of Scripture. Um, and I think sometimes past this is not as true as it once was, but I think sometimes pastors who are for- themselves formed very powerfully in the church can forget what it's like for people whose formation is altogether different. Um, and I was reminded of this. This was not something that, that that I planned. I knew what I wanted to say in this lecture, but what I didn't know is one of the wonderful things about teaching is how teaching can unexpectedly illuminate things that you're, uh, you, didn't, you didn't know a connection was going to form, but it did. In, in my, uh, the great text course of the, I'm teaching right now, great text of the 20th century, um, we just finished reading these two books, um, Karl Barth's Commentary on Romans and Thomas Merton's The Seven-Story Mountain, um, his autobiographical narrative of how he became a monk. And and I think it, the, what I, I, again I didn't expect this, but as I was putting this talk together, I realized how much these two writers and the comparison of these two writers played into the themes that we're uh, that I'm discussing today. Because Bart was from childhood a man of the church. I mean, he was someone who was raised in an extremely ecclesiastical environment and was marked out from his earliest youth as someone who was going to be a pastor. Uh, And so biblical study and theological training were were his milk and then later on his meat. Whereas uh, Merton was raised virtually without religious belief. Um, And and it's really interesting to see... How radically opposed they are in their approaches, even though what both of them are trying to converge on is the same thing authentic supernatural Christianity. So you could lay it out this way: you know, Bart is someone who was formed in a Christian subculture, Merton is someone formed in a secular subculture. Bart was professionally trained as a reader of scripture, Merton as a reader of literature. Possibly because, well, largely because of this formation, Bart's chief concern about his society is idolatry. That is, it's the idolatry that he thinks Christendom is particularly prone to. Societies that think of themselves as Christian uh, tend to become, Bart learned this from Kierkegaard, um, idolaters of their own status as Christians rather than worshipers of the living God. And and so his concern is to, to bring everywhere in the epistle to the Romans is to just bring the hammer to idolatry, all the forms of idolatry that Christians are particularly prone to. Whereas Merton, his concern, having been raised in a secular environment without any religious formation at all, his concern about his society is what I would call insensibility, that is just simply, they're unaware of the presence of God. You know, that, that Merton, when he comes to see uh, that the heavens declare the glory of God, as Psalm 19 says, it reorients his whole world. And he's like, this was happening all the time. You know, that the firmament was declaring his handiwork all along, and I never heard it, I never saw it. I was, I was insensible to it. And so what he wants to do is to awaken people's sensibility. He's not worried about idolatry. He's not worried that they're worshiping the wrong thing. He's worried that they're not worshiping anything at all. And so um, their their approaches are radically different, but I think that that radical difference has pretty much everything to do with, with the difference between being raised wholly within the church and being raised completely outside the church. And I think that that also has a lot to do, maybe this is a little more technical than, than we need to get into today in any depth, but I want to say it, it has a lot to do with, with their different responses to the question of natural theology and the role of natural theology. You know, Bart's famous reply to Emil Brunner's uh, a defense of, of natural theology is nine. <laughs> no, we do not do natural theology. And so for him, grace is essentially annihilates nature, replaces nature, at least in, in the epistle to the Romans he, he changes a bit later on. But for, but for uh, Merton, uh, grace perfects the work that nature began or that God began in him through using nature. Um, and we're going to come back to that later on, but I, I want to mention this right now because I think that one of the things that people who were formed in the church can sometimes forget is how much differently all these questions look to people who were formed completely outside the church. And, and they might need to make room for um, a different way of drawing near to God and allowing God to draw near to them. Keep that in mind as we move into the next um, section which I'm calling The State of Play. Um, and I want to go, I, I want to invoke a book which I think is a tremendously important book by the Dutch scholar um, Johan Heisinga, called Homo Ludens, Man the Player, a study of the play element. The translation, the English translation says in culture that's not right. Uh, Heisinger actually protested against that translation. Uh, It's the play element of culture because he says, it was not my object to define the place of play among all other manifestations of culture, but rather to ascertain how far culture itself bears the character of play. Is all human culture in some sense a mode of playing? And Heisinger says it is, and I think he's right, and I think that is immensely relevant to these very issues that we are talking about. In, in laying things out, he says, play is free, these are his major definitions, is in fact freedom. Secondly, play is a stepping out of real life into a temporary sphere of activity with a disposition all of its own. And then third, play is played out within certain limits of time and place. It contains its own course and meaning. Play begins and then at a certain moment it is over. Okay. So, so we have these sort of territories within our lives that are marked out as spaces of play, which have their own rules, a little different than the rules that, w- that <clears throat> we have elsewhere. This is one of the reasons why, um, you know, within, um, within a football game, um, you you can just knock the snot out of somebody, and it's not an actionable offense. You know, it's not something that you're going to uh, be called up, uh, you know, uh, to to the police to account for. Um, rules are different there. Now, sometimes we have overlap, and we have bleed over, and we have a lot of cultural problems as a result of that. But the basic idea is that we understand that play has its own rules, and that it is some degree separate. From life. And in fact, Heisinger says, that's not just a human thing. He says, animals have not waited for man to teach them their playing. I figure all, all presentations should have either a dog or a cat picture at some point. Uh, but I like this one because, look, that dog's biting that other dog's leg, and yet he's obviously play-biting, right? It's obviously play-biting. Um, and yet, the play-biting is a mode of practicing aggression. It's a non-aggressive mode of practicing aggression. Let's think about that. I want to do this with the help of a wonderful, wonderful book by Francis Spufford, who was here at Baylor last year, um, uh, to give a talk based on his book Unapologetic, which is the um, probably the sweariest book in defense of Christianity that I know, but uh, 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 I think a really powerful book for people, again, who come from outside the church. But one of his earlier books is called The Child That Books Built. Great title, A Life in Reading. And, and he talks about the stages of his experience as a, as a, a reader. And he talks about the, that first stage being the child of uh, the child reading baby books and books for very small children. He calls that the forest. And I won't get into why he calls it that. But the next stage... Which chapter three is The Island. And The Island is basically Narnia. Um, Even though Narnia is not necessarily an island, it was kind of like a fictional island. And then in the chapter four, it's called The Town. And that's where he talks about how he moved from being absolutely fascinated with the Narnia books to being absolutely fascinated with Laura Ingalls Wilder's books. And he's thinking particularly about Little House in the Town right, this movement from being out on the prairie in a farmhouse moving into town. And that was a big move for him as a reader as well. He says, and i got a big chunk of text here, so sorry about this one, but uh, I want to track with him because I think he says something really important here. The books I read as a child that taught me about how people should treat each other were almost all set inside the circle drawn upon emptiness by a small community of one kind or another. Though Narnia did not yet lose its power, when I was nine and ten, I chose more and more stories that operated inside this circle that took me to town. While in Narnia, good and evil were distinct, as distinct as a lion is from a witch. In town, they had to be worked out, in the actions of people who had to live tomorrow with what they and everybody else did today. When I read the stories that took me to town, I had, when I read the stories that took me to town, I had to learn about even the most simplified or idealized or stylized people by watching what they did. Understanding came bit by bit and it resembled the knowledge you had of real people. And so as with real people, You needed to pay attention to what it was kind or generous or honorable to conclude about their characters. They existed in relationship to one another, but also in a way in relationship to you. You had a kind of responsibility towards them. You had a kind of responsibility towards them. With no penalty, if you let them down, except that you understood less than you might have done. See, so you're, it's not like if, 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 you, if you are not fair and you're not charitable and you're not generous to the people you see every day, there may be a really concrete penalty for you there, right? But if you're not fair, you're not charitable, you're not generous towards the people in the books you read, there's no penalty. It's, it's a game. Except that you understood a little less than you might have done. And that lack of understanding might be something that comes back to haunt you when you leave the world of the books and move back into the world of your everyday life. The perceptions of fiction are transferable when they're the fictions of the town. When novels offer you knowledge of their characters that's difficult and precious in a way which parallels the hard-won knowledge of real people, they make you more interested in life off the page, not less. It's transferable. But the transfer will only happen if you want it to. Nobody's going to make you. Nobody can make you. You have to be willing. Another work, recent work of criticism that I think makes this vivid is a a wonderful book by Edward Mendelssohn, teaches at Columbia University called The Things That Matter. And this is a real word of, uh, I, I think for those of us who teach literature for a living, one of the things that we get frustrated by is students who say, I just, I didn't like that book, I just couldn't identify with the characters. I, mean, I don't care whether you could identify with the characters or no. That's not what this is about. Well, Edward sort of remind who's who's a friend of mine, a wonderful guy. Um, um, he reminds me of something that corrects me. I love it. He says, anyone, I think, who reads a novel for pleasure or instruction takes an interest both in the closed fictional world of that novel and in the ways the book provides models of examples of the kinds of life that a reader might or might not choose to live. That is, you're you're interested in the book for itself, but you're also interested in the transferable lessons. Um, Most novels of the past two centuries that are still worth reading were written to respond to both of those interests. They were not written to be read objectively or dispassionately as if by some non-human intelligence. And they can be understood most fully if they are interpreted and understood from a personal point of view, not only from historical, thematic, or analytical perspectives. A reader who identifies with the characters in a novel is not reacting in a naive way that ought to be outgrown or transcended, but is performing one of the central acts of literary understanding. I think that's, I I, I was like, yeah, that's really true. That's really true. Even though I still want to say, just because you can't identify with a character doesn't mean it's not a good book. Give it some, you know, let's give it some room. But that identification, what is that? That's engaging in the transference that Francis Spufford is talking about. Back to our dogs, right? You know, these are transferable lessons. You know, they, they, they identify with a particular role They play it out, right? And when you do that, when you get into that realm, especially because, like David, listening to the story that Nathan tells him, you may not think this is about you. Your defenses are down. Those stories might be able to tell you something that you couldn't hear any other way. Here's the church of uh, the little chapel um, at uh, the community of Little Gidding in uh, Hertfordshire in England, um, about which T.S. Eliot wrote a very famous poem. And in that poem, he talks about paying a visit to Little Gidding in the winter. And he wrote, If you came this way, taking the route you would be likely to take, from the place you would be likely to come from, if you came this way in May time, you would find the hedges white again in May with voluptuary sweetness. It would, be, it would be the same at the end of the journey if you came at night like a broken king. If you came by day not knowing what you came for, it would be the same when you leave the rough road and turn behind the pigsty to the dull facade and the tombstone. And what you thought you came for is only a shell, a husk of meaning, from which the purpose breaks only when it is fulfilled, if at all. Either you had no purpose, or the purpose is beyond the end you figured and is altered in fulfillment." Uh, I, I, that's one of my favorite passages in all of poetry, and I think it's a wonderful image of what can happen. Sometimes we we go, we pick up a book, or we listen to some music, or we view some art, and our purpose either we don't have much of a purpose, or our purpose is limited. We just want to be entertained, we want to be interested, and then something breaks through, something we weren't looking for, something we weren't expecting. And it's all the more powerful because we weren't looking for it and weren't expecting it. And when that happens, then you move from the husk of meaning to the fulfillment of meaning. And this is where I'm going to move towards the articulation of a problem And then, to those of you who are in or want to be in or care about congregational ministry, a challenge. So, um, Francesca Aaron Murphy has a book called God is Not a Story. And in this book, she's a theologian, um, she talks about the problems with story language. She says, the contemporary theological practice of describing Christian doctrines or beliefs as narratives or stories, leads to a non-realistic idea of God. That is, to conceiving God as a story or narrative invented by ourselves. Now, notice that she doesn't say that that's what it is intrinsically. She says it's what it leads to. That is, when 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 you think of your life exclusively in terms of the story that it tells... The narrative that you are in. It's very easy for God just to become yet another character in your story. And so she thinks that this kind of language is ultimately dangerous. She says the idea that doctrines are narratives derives from an emphasis on the method of theology, that is, the substitution of a self-reflective description of how we know about God for saying what God is. That's not the most clear sentence anybody's ever written, but I think what what she's saying there, if I can unpack it a bit, is that when we speak of doctrines as, for instance, if we speak of the incarnation of, of the second person of the Trinity solely in narrative terms then we can come to focus on the kind of the artfulness or the shape of the story and lose sight of the fact that the purpose of this is to testify to who God is beyond any stories that we might happen to tell about him. That's her concern. And I think that that's a legitimate concern. And here's how I think it plays out. I, I, you know, I still want to defend the use of stories and along the lines that I've just defended it, but I think we ought to hear what Murphy is saying here. And I think where the rubber meets the road here is something that has been explained to us by George MacDonald. Um, here's what he says in one of his unspoken sermons. As many of you, I, I think, may know, MacDonald was... Uh, uh, an eccentric fellow, to say the least, and uh, had trouble getting uh, in keeping a pastorate. And so he wrote when he couldn't. When he when he couldn't. Uh, uh, he was not called to a church for long periods of time. He would just write sermons anyway, <laughs> and then publish them as unspoken sermons. And this is from one of his unspoken sermons. I will tell you, get up and do something the master tells you. So make yourself his disciple at once. Instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, ask yourself whether this you have this day done one thing because he said do it or once abstained because he said do not do it. It is simply absurd to say you believe or even want to believe in him if you do not do anything he tells you. That's a strong, strong word. It is simply absurd to say you believe or even want to believe in him. If you do not do anything, he tells you. McDonald is saying if you want to believe in the Lord Jesus, then what you do is try doing what he tells you. We want to achieve perfect belief, perfect confidence, perfect trust. Say, okay, now that I'm absolutely sure I will begin obe- uh, obeying, and McDonald is saying, that's got that's kind of it backwards. Try obedience, and from obedience, belief will grow. I want to go back to Thomas Merton, who, in describing sort of the long and complicated and difficult and up and down journey that he had towards becoming a Christian and then becoming a monk, he, he talks about the period in his life when he was studying the poetry of the great English mystic and artist and poet William Blake. And, and he wrote this, As Blake worked himself into my system, I became more and more conscious of the necessity of a vital faith. To say that is to say a great deal, and I don't want to say it in a way that conveys more than the truth. I will have to limit the statement by saying that it was still, for me, more an intellectual realization than anything else, and it had not yet struck down into the roots of my will. It's interesting because notice how this echoes to some extent what Lewis was saying about MacDonald. He says, MacDonald baptized my imagination. He he did not touch my intellect, nor did he touch my conscience at that time. And so you see here the problem is moving from imagination and intellect to the conscience and the will, the transformation of life that is manifest in obedience. So later on, when Merton is now reading more and more works of theology and um, spirituality, he, he still isn't done with that problem. He says, this is a really challenging problem word, too. Even though the subject matter of your reading may be the mysteries of the Christian faith, the manner of contemplating them, speculative and impersonal, may still not transcend the natural plane, at least as far as practical consequences go. In such an event, you get not contemplation but a kind of intellectual and aesthetic gluttony, a high and refined and even virtuous form of selfishness. And when it leads to no movement of the will towards God, no efficacious love of him, it is sterile and dead, this meditation, and could even become, under certain circumstances, a kind of sin. That is, even spiritual reading, and certainly this would be doubly true of literary reading, can become a kind of sin if you indulge in it In order to gratify your imaginative desires, but not in order to be a follower of Jesus, an imitator of him, an obedient child of God. And I think this is this is what's tough, right? Because there are a lot of people who say, I get so much spiritual nourishment from reading Lewis, and from reading Tolkien, and from reading Fred Beekner and from reading Flannery O'Connor, and from reading Walker Percy, and from reading Madeleine Lingle." and you know, they they say, I get that spiritual nourishment. I get nourishment that I don't get when I go to church. When I go to church, they just preach at me, you know, but that's not, that's not awakening my imagination. It's not awakening a meaning and a sense of value and purpose. So forget about going to church. Forget about participating in my local congregation. You know, I'm going to meet God in these books. But what I, as much as I hate to say it as a guy who loves literature and for whom literature has been such a shaping force in my own life, I recognize in this a desire, if I can you know, put it in, in Pauline terms, to stick with milk and not move on to meat. That is, I, I can see this as, you know, yeah, I, I, that's great. I can just stay in my room and I can read my books and I can enjoy this imaginative world, And uh, but I never actually have to go the step beyond that, which is required in, for instance, trying to love my neighbor. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's... That, I think, is what Murphy is getting at when she says, God is not a story. And the way that I would put it, as I've done in my title, is to say God is more than a story, far more than a story. And so I think for those of us who care about congregational ministry, this really puts us in a difficult situation because there are these wonderful books and poems, stories, that can awake a meaning for people who can't be touched in other ways who are just blind and deaf to whatever it is that the church does but these these stories which can awaken the imagination are not enough they are ultimately at the end of the day milk and not meat they are food for spiritual children I mean, I, hate to, I even hate to say it, you know. I mean, I'm, I still read these things. I still draw nourishment from them. But if that's all I'm doing, if I'm not moving on to the difficult calling of obedience to Christ, which is, frankly, also death to myself, then I'm staying at the level of a spiritual child, so it seems to me then that we're at this is the heart of the matter and I think that there is here a multiple challenge to pastors and teachers. And so I want to leave you with these these thoughts. The first is I really do think that ministry today requires people to use literature and the arts to help awaken people to sensibility of God's reality and presence. That's, I Remember I said that for um, Merton the chief concern is insensibility. We want to cultivate sensibility. We want to awake meaning. We, this is how so many people in the congregation or people who won't join your congregation are able to have their first encounters with God is through the mediation of beautiful and powerful stories. You, you cannot afford to neglect that. That has to be a part of of congregational ministry because this is this is who we're dealing with here people who have never been shaped by the church who have never been shaped by the christian story who are completely formed within the consumer materialist technocratic culture of uh, of america today And they've got to start somewhere, and they've got to start with something that will awake in them a meaning that cannot yet be conveyed to them. Okay? Number two, I think do this with some care and thought. Be aware of the difference between fictions of the island, that is, the ones that just give us imaginative delight, and the transferable fictions of the town as Francis Bufford makes that distinction. I think that's really, really valuable. Um, this, uh, you know, I, for instance, I think the, in the transferable fictions, I think one of the books that I think does most to sort of embody these transferable qualities is The Lord of the Rings. I think The Lord of the Rings is amazing at showing something that you don't see that much in a lot of other books, which is just the, the hard slog that faithfulness is. <laughs> the just the the grinding work day by day of hanging on sometimes by a thread to what you believe to be true and i think looking for stories that are transferable in that sense is a tremendously valuable thing so so think about how these stories might play a role in ministry but also be particular about what they are not only the stories that awaken but the stories that are transferable. And then third, I think you've got to be aware of what um, Merton calls the dangers of intellectual and aesthetic gluttony. You You can be reading the right kinds of books. You can be reading rich and fulfilling books, but if you're reading them only in order to be entertained only in order to get a kind of an imaginative thrill and you're not willing to transfer the lessons of those books into your own life, your own walk as a Christian, then they won't do you that much good. They'll distract you and then maybe they'll keep you from worse things, (laughs) but they won't move you forward. You can become an intellectual and aesthetic glutton just wanting more of those imaginative pleasures. And then finally... Strive to teach and preach in such a way to encourage the move from involvement in story to obedience to the Lord. Involvement in story is where people are going to begin, many people who have not been formed by the church. That's a great place to begin, wonderful things to do there, but you can't let people stay there. At the end of the day, what we have to do is to move towards that obedient that obedience to be faithful children of our God. Thank you very much for your time.